Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Good evening, children of the night. The last four weeks have been our tribute to classic stories in our genre to mark our 200th episode. Next week, we will return to our trip south along the east coast of the United States. This week, we'll talk a little bit about business. On our Facebook page, you've likely seen the link to a survey that Tony is running for the whole district. I'd encourage you to check that out and let your voice be heard about our future and the way things are going. The entire district right now is considering what our future is going to look like. Typically, each of the individual podcasts have been given absolute free reign on how they handle their own business, but we're trying to consolidate a bit. For example, money. You know very well that once or twice a year I spend an episode or two or maybe even three trying to beg a few dollars out of your pockets to, as we like to say, keep the lights on. The district is now using Patreon as a system for funding. Patreon is something that you will hear me mention regularly, but not with the same pledge drive ferocity that we've used in the past. For those of you who are less familiar with Patreon, it's a system that you sign up to give a bit of money to a creative entity every month or so. So instead of us getting generous yet irregular donations from listeners and then hoping that next time someone will give us that same money, we will now switch to something else. Smaller contributions over time will be easier on your monthly finances and will be more stable for us. As you might recall, we had quite a financial close call a few months ago. We also have been doing some fine-tuning that has already been happening. Do you remember the tour of the abattoir pieces that we used to have? I do, and I really enjoyed them. Those were before my days as host, but as that ran its course, we opted to not find something to replace it. Also, Sylvia Schultz Lights Out will no longer be airing with the podcast. Why, you may ask? Focus is my answer. Although both segments and others are topical to our genre, our primary focus should be on airing horror short stories. During conversations on this topic, I volunteered the idea of axing my road trip south. However, it was met with some resistance. The difference, it seems, to be is the duration of the bits at the beginning of the show. Five or ten minutes, no big deal, but when we creep into 20, 30, 40 minutes, I may have lost some of the focus. 
However, Lights Out is very much going to continue, and I will have a link in the show notes to Sylvia's page so that you can continue listening to her ghost hunts and interviews. Which brings me to our next item on the agenda. My tour of places on the eastern part of North America will come to its conclusion once I run out of interesting places to find in between our most recent stop in Savannah's treasure trove of mystery and ghosts. After that, what I'd like to do is hear from you. We have listeners everywhere on this planet that English is understood, and I don't know much of anything about the local haunts, mysterious deaths, the monsters that skulk through your woods, religious cults, or even the dark legends that just won't be forgotten. I want to hear them from you. Give us something that will fill at least a few minutes of time at the beginning of the show, or something that I can do some research on, or, better still, if you've got a quiet spot and a halfway decent microphone, tell it to us yourself, and I'll air it. Send all of it to tales to terrify at gmail.com, and of course, link will be in the show notes, just as a reminder. So to sum it all up, send money to Patreon, send the oddities around you to tales to terrify at gmail.com. Let's get to our fiction. Our first story comes from Angela Slatter. Specializing in dark fantasy and horror, Angela Slatter is the author of The Girl with No Hands and Other Tales, Sourdough and Other Stories, The Bitterwood Bible and Other Recountings, and Black-Winged Angels, as well as Midnight in Moonshine and The Female Factory, both with Lisa L. Hannett. She has won five Aurelius Awards, one British Fantasy Award, and a World Fantasy Award, as well as being a finalist for the Norma K. Hemming Award. Angela's short stories have appeared in Australian, UK, and US Best Of anthologies, such as The Mammoth Book of New Horror, Stephen Jones, editor, The Year's Best Dark Fantasy and Horror, Paula Goran, editor, The Best Horror of the Year, Ellen Datlow, editor, The Year's Best Australian Fantasy and Horror, Liz Grizib and Tally Helene, editors, and the year's best YA speculative fiction, Elisa Krasnostein and Julia Rios, editors. She has an MA and a PhD in creative writing, is a graduate of Clarion South 2009 and the Tin House Summer Writers Workshop 2006, and in 2013, she was awarded one of the inaugural Queensland Writers Fellowships. Her novellas of Sorrow and Such from Tor.com and Ripper in the Stephen Jones anthology Horrorology from Joe Fletcher Books was released in October 2015. Angela's urban fantasy novel Vigil, based on the short story Brisneyland by Night, will be released by Joe Fletcher Books in 2016 and the sequel Corpse Light in 2017. She is represented by Ian Drury of the literary agency Shieldland. And now we will hear Angela Slatter's Sourdough. My father did not know that my mother knew about his other wives, but she did. It didn't seem to bother her. Perhaps because of them all, she had the greater independence and a measure of prosperity that was all her own. Perhaps that's why he loved her best. Mother baked very fine bread black and brown for the poor, and shining white for the affluent. We were by no means rich, but we had more than those around us, and there was enough money to spare for occasional gifts, a book for George, a toy train for Artur, and a thin silver ring for me, engraved with flowers and vines. The sight of other children in other squares, with father's uniquely gleaming red hair, did not bother mother at all. After he died, I think she found it comforting to be reminded of him by all those bright little heads. Our home was in one of the squares, at the edge of the merchant's quarter. The town was divided into quarters that weren't really quarters, seen from above the town. It was a large square, made up of groups of much smaller squares, tall houses built around a common courtyard. In the centre of the town was a cathedral high up on a hill. Then, spreading around it in an orderly fashion, were rows and rows of city blocks, the richest ones nearest the cathedral. Then the further out you got, the poorer the blocks. We sat just before the poorest houses. 
not quite good enough to be in the middle of the merchants' rows, but still not in among the places where rats shared cradles with babies. We had several large rooms, midway up one of the tall houses, and Mother leased out the big ground-floor kitchen for her business. From the time I could walk, I would follow Mother around the kitchen learning her art. For a while, she was simply annoyed by my constant presence as I got underfoot. But when I learned to sit on the bench next to the huge wooden table on which she needed the bread and be quiet, she decided to share her knowledge. I was her firstborn, after all, and her only daughter. When I could see over the top of the table, I started to help her, baking tiny child's loaves at first for practice, much to Mother's amusement, then making the dark, poor bread for those who could not afford refined flour, Finally, I was allowed to create white bread to grace the tables of the rich, those born to wealth and knowing nothing else, the higher merchants, the bishop and his like. I began to create complicated twists of dough to look like artworks. At first Mother laughed, but the orders kept coming for them, so she watched and imitated me. One morning, after we'd finished baking bread for the day, I began to play with the leftover dough on the board in front of me. Soon a child formed, a baby, perfectly copied to the life, with tiny hands and feet, an angel's smile, and a sculpted lick of hair on its forehead. Mother came up behind me and stared. She reached past me and squashed her fist down on the dough child, pushing and kneading until it was once again a featureless lump. Never do that. Never make an image of a person or a child. They bring bad luck, Emmeline, or things you don't want. We don't need any of that. I should have remembered the doe child. But memory is a traitor to good sense. There was to be a wedding arranged, a fine society do, and we were to supply the bread. The parents of the groom, or rather his mother, insisted on being involved in every decision pertaining to the wedding, so there was a power struggle in train between her and the bride's mother, two titans in boned bodices. Things were getting tense, apparently. This information we had from Madame Fifinet, about as French as Yorkshire pudding, the confectioner, who was to supply the bonbons for the wedding feast. We were to appear at the groom's parents' house, goods in tow, to show our wares. Mother and I tidied ourselves up as well as we could, pulling flower-free dresses from chests and piling our hair high. Artur and George were press-ganged into carrying the wooden trays of our finest white breads to the big house near the cathedral. We were shown into a drawing-room almost as big as our ground-floor kitchen. As soon as the boys gingerly laid the trays on the big table, Mother shooed them out. I knew they'd be in the stable yard, bumming cigarillos from the stable and kitchen lads, eyeing the horses longingly, waiting for the day when Mother could afford a horse and carriage. That day was a long way off, but they hoped the proceeds from the wedding would speed up the process. The drawing-room was awash with boredom. The parents sat stiffly across from each other on heavily embroidered chairs whose legs were so finely carved it seemed that they should not be able to support the weight of anyone let alone these four who almost dripped with the fat of their prosperity. The bride, conversely, was thin as a twig nervous and sallow but pretty with darting dark eyes and tightly pulled hair sitting in a thick dark red bun at the base of her neck. The groom did not face the room. He had removed himself to the large French window and was staring at the courtyard below, probably watching my brothers watching his horses. He had dark hair, curly, that kissed the collar of his jacket, and he was tall, but that was all I could tell. Madame Fifinet said he was called Peregrine. Mother nodded to me and I took the first loaf from one of the trays, 
showed it to the clients so they could observe its clever shape, a church bell with bows, then placed it on a platter and cut six slices for them to taste. The two mothers, the two fathers, the bride, all took their slices and the room was silent but for their well-bred chewing. I crossed the room and offered the groom the last slice. He didn't turn, merely raised his hand in a no and shook his head. I noticed his hand bore the stain of a port-white wine birthmark. That would be a shame, sir, to waste something so fine. Perhaps, struck by the fact that I spoke to him, he looked at me and broke into a smile. Yes, you're right, it would be a shame. He took the bread, green eyes bright. What hair you have, miss? I blushed. Emmeline, mother called me, and I began my task over again. Now the loaf shaped like a flower, now the one like an angel. Now the animal shapes, rabbits, doves, kittens, a horse, the one like a church. Each time I saved his slice until last, and we spoke in low voices. He asked me about my life, and laughed at my pert answers. When the tasting was finished, the mothers began to argue. The design to choose was the cause of combat. Finally, they turned to the girl, Sylvia, and made her decide. She had the look of a trapped animal, and I felt sorry for her. Perhaps, I began, and all eyes turned to me. The mothers brimming with affront, the fathers with boredom, the grooms with amusement, my own mothers with something like dread, and the brides with hope of rescue. Perhaps Miss Sylvia has a favourite animal or a flower. We could make the bread to her choice, if she does not like what we have brought today. A fox, she cried, clapping her hands to her mouth, as if she'd said something wrong or too bold. I smiled, and she said more firmly, Yes, a fox, that would please me. As you wish, Miss Sylvia. Mother's voice was a relieved breeze. My Emmeline can make anything with her hands. She has great skill. So it was settled. The bride had spoken and defied both her mother and future mother-in-law. Mother and I hefted the wooden trays scattered with the remains of butchered loaves and made for the door. The groom was there before the footman and ushered us through. He smiled and I felt as warm as bread, fresh from the oven. In the months before the wedding, he came to me many times. The first time, I was alone in the kitchen. Mother was ill, spending half her time sleeping, the other half shouting delirious orders, which I ignored, from her bed. Arthur and George took turns delivering the bread and sitting by her side, while I kept the kitchen running. I dropped the tray when I saw him at the door. I was covered in flour, my hair covered by a scarf, and barefoot because I loved the feel of the kitchen's flags cool and covered with a light dusting of flour. He laughed and held out the largest bunch of flowers I had ever seen. I examined it as he picked up the fallen tray and placed it on one of the benches. This was no posy picked from the fields outside the town. These were exotic blooms, blossoms grown in hothouses and afforded only by the rich. Hello, Miss Emmeline. Are you baking for my wedding yet? That's months off, young sir, as you well know. How would it look to serve stale bread at your wedding feast? It would be appropriate, more appropriate than you know. My fox bride might even tell you that herself, if she were truthful. He touched one of the florid roses in the bouquet and smiled. Do you like these? You're very fine, sir, fit for your bride. But I think you will like them best. Yes. We did nothing more that first time than talk. Subsequent times were very different, but that first visit, I think, made us friends and stood us in good stead. He brought gifts, even though I told him not to. 
Something for me always. Sometimes things for mother and the boys. Artur and George, hostile and suspicious at first, were won over when he brought the horses. Two of the finest creatures I've ever seen. With a red gold fleck to their coats and white stars on their foreheads. Peregrine told me later that their colouring reminded him of our bright hair. The most beautiful thing he gave me was a ring, rose gold, with a square-cut emerald. A dangerous stone, I told him. What do you mean? An emerald will crack, if given by a lover whose heart is unfaithful, I replied. He laughed and dragged me down. Yours will be safe. I had no expectation of marriage. I was friend and mistress. He would marry his fox bride, as he called Sylvia, and I knew it. I only expected constancy, and for many months I had it. When my belly began to swell, he laughed with delight, his fingers lightly dancing over my taut skin, stroking the curls at the apex of my thighs, and gently showing me how pleased he was at what we had made together. I thought then, briefly, of the doe child, but put it from my mind. One day, a fortnight before his wedding, he ceased to visit. Instead, the fox bride came one morning, as I needed doe in the kitchen. She was different to the nervous girl I had met months ago. She eyed the kitchen and me with disdain, as if she might somehow find some uncleanness clinging to her silken skirts from the mere proximity of such a place and personage. I put my hands to my stomach. She snorted, a brief, sharp laugh that cut. You will not have him any more, she said. He will be my husband. You do not love him, I replied. It had not occurred to me that the fox bride would not share. But I want this marriage. I want to be away from my parents. I want to be mistress of my own house. But if he keeps running to you, keeps loving you more and more, then he may decide not to marry me, she glared. I will not allow that to happen. Stay away from here. Stay away from me. I will tell him. He does not remember you, she laughed, came close and showed her sharp white teeth in a smile. Why do you think he isn't here with his love watching what he's planted grow? You are not the only one who can make things. Potions are more powerful than bread, little Emmeline. Her hand shot out, and she laid her palm against my belly. I moved back, almost falling over an uneven flag. Watch, nothing goes into your food, Emmeline. I wouldn't want you to lose this last piece of peregrine. I heard her laughter, even as she walked down the street. I thought only to run to Peregrine, but my nose began to bleed, and my belly contracted so hard that this time I did fall, and mercifully found the dark balm of sleep. Their wedding day dawned grey and overcast, as summer slipped into autumn. The weather kept all but the most enthusiastic of wedding-goers at home. The old women, who wait outside the church, knitting and yammering, commenting on all aspects of the event, how the bride looked, how well her dress suited, or not, if she was glowing, and if so, why, honeymoon baby, my sainted aunt, and how long the marriage would last. It was with these ancient birds that I waited on the first day I had managed to leave my bed. The child had come too soon, a little boy, looking not unlike the doe child, and leaving me bereft. 
Mother had barely left my side, worrying that I would not speak, would not touch the still little body before she took it away. Artur and George brought to me poses, but they only made me cry. I missed the brief funeral that was held for my son, confined to bed by a bleeding the sad, gentle little doctor could not stop. Mother brought an old woman one night, who gave me something foul to drink and applied a sweet-smelling poultice of moss between my legs. My body started to repair itself then. Mother told me that the boys had tried to speak to Peregrine. He had simply looked through them in bewilderment, saying he did not know who they were. They had hidden the horses he had given them in a stable at the outer edges of town, in case someone accused them of theft. Mother had presented herself at the big house, ostensibly to discuss the wedding bread, and Peregrine simply looked through her. She felt she must be a ghost, so empty was his face. The old woman who had tended to me told her there were things that could bewitch a man's mind and make him forget his dearest desire. The fox bride was more than she seemed. I watched her as she left the cathedral on her husband's arm. I would have let her have this. It had never been my intent to take it from her. But she had stolen my lover, and my child was dead. She stepped into a puddle of mud as she headed towards the carriage, and shrieked her distaste as her silk shoes and white lace hem turned the colour of dirty chocolate. I smiled in spite of myself and slid the hood from my head, my bright hair shining out in the dimness of the day. Peregrine looked up from his wife's distress and saw me, his face twisted, distracted, uncertain, but he did not know me. His attention turned back to his bride and I slipped away before she could see me and triumph. In my kitchen, I found the remnants of the wedding bread dough and began to sculpt another dough child. I fashioned it as cunningly as the first, but this time with intent and not a little malice. Such magic requires only intent and ill will, but no great skill. I drew from my finger the ring Peregrine had given me. The emerald gleamed at me, intact, unbroken. His heart was never unfaithful, only his memory. The ring was pushed into the doe child's belly. I made a belly button to cover its ingress. When it came from the oven... It had a fine golden crust and looked like a cherub. I delivered it to the cook at the house the newlyweds were to share. She was a friend of mother's and took the doe child gladly. Tell them it's for a fertility and to bless them with a child, she nodded. They shall have it for supper this very eve, Emmeline. He told me later how the dough child had been served to them on a silver tray, with butter and a selection of jams. Sylvia had oohed and aahed over the silly little thing and happily cut herself a thick slice, slathering it with sugary conserve. Peregrine ate the bread dry and unadorned. When the sourdough touched his tongue, his memory returned. The fox bride continued to eat as he railed at her. She greedily chewed and swallowed great bites of bread, laughing at his rage and talking around her food, telling him she would do it again too. Then she began to choke. Her face went red and blew around the lips as she struggled to draw in air. She pointed at her throat, threw things at him as he stood staring in horror. When she was finally still, he called for a doctor. 
the little doctor, the one who... Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. ...had attended me so unsuccessfully, found the emerald ring lodged in her throat. He, I'm sure, recognized it and placed it in Peregrine's hand, closing the young widower's fingers around the piece of jewellery. Someone will be looking for that young man. I no longer wear it very often, knowing what I did with it, although I do bring it out now and then to remind myself of his constant heart. We live in another house, as far away from his parents as he could get, but still in one of the nicer squares. My bro- mother runs her business out of a real shop not far from us and has two young girls apprenticed to her. They don't have your touch, Emmeline, she sometimes says, but she knows why I will no longer bake, why my hands will never again knead dough, She is happy, for she knows her grandchild comes. I am content to visit the small grave where my first child lies. I speak with him often and tell him about his father and sister who comes to us soon. I tell him I am sorry I could not protect him and that I will never forget him. My memory is true. That was Angela Slatter's Sourdough, as read by Margaret Essex. Margaret Essex lives on the beautiful far south coast of New South Wales, Australia, with her long-suffering husband, a happy hound and the cat who rules. She spends time gardening, seed-saving, cheese-making, making music, and loves to be at a table of food and wine with friends and family. Thank you, Margaret. Our second story of the night will come from Patrick O'Neill. Patrick O'Neill is a rising new talent in the world of horror fiction. He resides in Dorset, the UK, with wife, Nikki, and son, Benedict. His dark and unsettling tales have been published here. Alderway, in Chiro Mad by Written Backwards, winner of the Compilation Slash Anthologies category at the London Books Festival of 2012. 
Church Farmhouse and Fear, A Modern Anthology of Horror and Terror by Crooked Cat, The Box and Dorset Voices by Roving Press, and The Collection in The Darkness Within by Indigo Mosaic. Patrick is currently working on his single author collection, Dark Hearts, and on his debut novel, No Contrition. And now we will hear Patrick O'Neill's underwriting department. The neatly sealed manila envelopes began arriving on my desk at Legal and Standard in June of 1971. There was nothing unusual in it. A life assurance company receives a great many postal applications, and there were no surface indicators or aesthetic clues that anything untoward could transpire through the receipt of them. Seven ordinary applications that required underwriting, that was all. But there is no doubt that they would become the catalyst to fuel my descent into the darkness. Sometimes, in the evenings, as I watch the flames in the hearth, I am captivated that the journey has led me to become so irreversibly altered, and that I am no longer simply the underwriter, Charles Latham, but something else altogether. Something nameless that steadily emerged through the madness, and grew in strength until virtually all traces of Charles were gone. I am still able to maintain control, but at times it is difficult. I have heard it said that the profession is tedious and without interest, but I have always loved my work. Applications are analyzed with the greatest diligence, and consideration of material fact is made without prejudice or lenience. Evaluation is undertaken with reference to age, personal circumstance, health, and sex. Morality tables are employed, family health histories investigated, and even postcodes considered to produce a risk-based quantification of life expectancy. In the end, I decide and control the outcome. I alone judge whether a case is accepted on standard terms, or is subject to an exclusion, a premium loading, or even that it is declined outright. It is a responsibility to control such risk, and I do not take it lightly. As the days passed and more envelopes appeared on my desk, I noted that they were all unopened, which was infuriating. I had specifically told Lucy, the office's most junior clerk, that all application-style envelopes should be opened on receipt and logged to the new business register prior to being passed to the underwriting department. As it happened, though, the envelope being unopened would eventually be to my advantage. I would be the only person to ever know of their existence. I'm sorry, Mr. Latham, Lucy said when confronted. I just forgot. I knew then that a swift conclusion to Lucy's career at legal and standard in the coming days would be in order. Lucy seemed ideal on paper, already having sat and passed the Certificate in Insurance Administration examination, which many of her colleagues had either failed or not taken sufficient interest in their positions to undertake. Furthermore, she had now decided to complete other qualifications, including the Certificate in Insurance Underwriting, Level 1. Clear though her determination was her failure to observe the importance of hierarchy at legal and standard had made her position untenable. Once the necessary arrangements had been made, I contacted Mildred Noble in the personnel department upstairs. A meeting with Lucy was arranged for the end of the day. Once the office had emptied, and after Mildred had passed my office door, I strolled to the administration department. Lucy was standing beside her desk as we approached, dressed in a gray overcoat and hugging a shiny black handbag. It was pleasant to see the blood drain from her face as I entered the room behind Mildred. It was obvious that, until that moment, she believed that this was going to be some kind of promotion. Good evening, Lucy, Mildred began with a familiar unwavering tone. I'll come straight to the point. It has been brought to my attention that you have been seen in Mr. Latham's office today during the lunchtime period. An expensive item belonging to Mr. Latham is now missing, and I would like to give you the opportunity to put the situation right by returning the item. After a prolonged silence, Lucy hugged her handbag even tighter and stuttered away through a pathetic explanation that she had never been in my office, and that she would never, ever take anything that did not belong to her. Mildred raised a palm, interrupting her mid-flow. I would ask kindly that you empty your pockets and the contents of your handbag on the desk beside you. With a disgruntled huff, Lucy reached into her coat pockets, and within seconds had pulled out my gold timepiece, which she now gazed at with alien disbelief. Let me guess, I interrupted, taking the timepiece from her shaking hand. You've never seen it before. Someone must have put it there. Clear your desk, Mildred continued, and do not return in the morning. You would be well advised not to seek a reference from legal and standard. It is not our policy to provide references to common thieves. You should be ashamed. With that, Mildred left the office, shutting the door behind her. What was it? she whispered, rage spreading across her young face in a blotchy, tear-stained rash. Were you threatened because I was taking the underwriting exams? 
You're a sad, middle-aged man, threatened by a younger... It was impossible for her to speak now, with my hand clenched over her mouth. I compressed her cheeks until features became a bulging mass of mascara and smeared crimson lipstick. I could easily have harmed her then, properly, but I reminded myself that I was not home now, with Mary and Jacob, and that this was neither the time nor the place. Threatened? I let go and smiled as she began to sob and tremble uncontrollably. I think not. Good luck in the future, Lucy. Tread carefully. Life is full of unexpected turns. Almost anything can happen, at almost any time. I held the timepiece before her face. Make certain you're well insured. Life assurance policies are commenced for a variety of purposes. A spouse wishing to provide a lump sum to his partner on death, a debtor seeking to ensure liabilities are not inherited by his estate, a wealthy individual protecting assets from death tax. As an underwriter, it is essential to identify that insurable interest is present and unambiguous in every case. The applications on my desk on 18th June 1971 were no different. Each application painted a detailed picture of personal circumstance, health, and insurable interest. During that time, we received many applications from housewives seeking to protect the financial interests of their families and, individually, each of the seven applications presented no anomaly to this. It was odd, though, I will concede, that all seven applications were female housewives, aged between 21 and 31 years. Something else troubled me, too, but I could not place it. I determined to put them in my briefcase with the intention of returning to the work with fresh eyes at home later. Church Farm House was quiet that evening. Mary Ann was attending another pointless horticulture class in Didcot and had taken Jacob with her. I was glad of it. I took to my office in the attic room, clicking open my briefcase and laying the applications across the desk. On second inspection, it came to me almost immediately. Once I had located my Oxford Street map, I marked out the addresses on each of the seven applications with black dots. It cannot have been a coincidence that all lived within a one-mile radius of each other near Gloucester Green. Outside, shadows were gathering steadily across the countryside like a dark army growing in numbers and creeping towards Morton. The field beside the house had been plowed that year, and the village children had erected a scarecrow at the central point, which was ragged and limp but looked strangely human to me as I watched the nightfall. Looking back through the documents one final time, it was apparent that I had overlooked another irregularity, too. All of the applicants were renting accommodations in the city. This was not unusual in itself, although to receive seven, all living within one mile of each other, was undoubtedly worthy of suspicion. I closed my eyes, letting my fingers brush across the papers until I had selected one at random. When I opened my eyes again, I saw it was the application from Sharon Poulton. I'll be out for an hour or two, I told Marianne when she arrived back from Didcot with Jacob. The kitchen is a state. When you get a moment, would you mind seeing to it at all? The frightened look in her pale eyes told me that she would not question where I was going and that she understood the message clearly enough. Why was she at a plant class when the housework had not been completed? I recognized Sharon Poulton immediately from the Xerox copy of her passport that had been included with her application form. She was blonde, young, and attractive, but it was difficult to ignore the distasteful pink miniskirt and cheap high heels as she stood on the corner of Blenheim Street, just south of Gloucester Green, and only minutes from her own front door. I had parked the Volvo beneath a broken street lamp further down the street, and, from this tree-shadowed vantage point, I could watch unseen as cars crept past her. Even then I felt it, awakening deep within me, the dark, shapeless creature that would slowly take form and eventually become a conscious, determined entity. Who did she think she was lying to me? What made her so sure that there would be no consequence for depicting herself as a housewife, when in reality she was nothing more than a common whore? Too many unanswered questions remained now to simply drive away and pretend I had never seen. I had come this far and determined that, by the end of the night, I would know everything, every last detail. After all, her application had not yet been accepted on standard terms. What chance would she have if I was not in receipt of all the facts? Hey, stranger. Nice car. We drove in silence until Oxford's glowing warmth was no more than a distant memory, lost among blackening hills and woodline roads. She had told me her name was Candace, which was an especially nice touch. It was odd, though, I will admit, sitting next to her. I knew so much, and yet she had no idea. Her place of birth, age, the fact that she had one child, a girl, age 14, exactly where she lived, even that she had suffered from bouts of asthma as an infant, but that these had retracted in later life. And yet still I had been hoodwinked. Do you know what a rescission is? I asked, as we neared the woods at Solom. 
Um, yeah. Isn't that when the economy's doing badly or something? That's a recession. A rescission is different. A rescission can be exercised when a life assurance company discovers that an applicant has provided false information or admitted material facts at the outset of a policy. Effectively, a rescission is the legal cancellation of the contract between the company and the policyholder. Wow, that's a real coincidence you talking about that stuff. I'm just getting life insurance at the moment. It is assurance, I said. Insurance covers for an event that may happen, such as getting your house burgled. Assurance is coverage for an event that will definitely occur, such as death. I sensed a different atmosphere now, a change in Sharon's demeanor, as the realization was slowly settling in. Where are we going? I know a place near here, I said. It's quiet. No one will disturb us, Sharon. I said my name was Candace. You've said a lot of things. I pulled the car into the gravelly pathway that led deep into woodland, towards the clearing carpeted with pine needles and enclosed by spindly stalks. I switched off the engine and watched the lights from the headlamps fade into blackness across the trees. It was perfect here, as I knew it would be, the silence almost complete if not for the owls screeching across the wooded hillside. I turned to Sharon and smiled a little at the panic spreading across her young, moonlit face. I have some questions, I said, about your application for life assurance with legal and standard. If you lie to me, there will be consequences. And so it began, the ultimate rescission, the final and definite cancellation of contract, the work that would alter and eventually dominate virtually every degree of my existence. Now, only days afterwards, I walked the wood-paneled corridors at Legal and Standard with a sense of detachment that was both terrifying and exhilarating, fueled by secret knowledge of what I had done and all that I knew would follow. My senses registered surroundings, but from a remote and isolated place, a place darker and more forbidding than the woods at Solemn in the dead of night. When I spoke to colleagues, I would consider, as we conversed, the actions that had led to the death of Sharon Poulton. If I had thought too hard, I became genuinely sickened, but at the same time, and given the details I had managed to glean from her in those final pleading moments, I knew it was not over and that this was, indeed, just the beginning. I sent a letter to Sharon soon afterwards, even though I knew she would never receive it. I backdated it, of course, to the day following receipt of her application. It was a simple note, a final, passing gesture, regretfully declining her application for life assurance at legal and standard. I took long walks through the fields around Morton in the following days, mulling over the next course of action. Now, in the receipt of information, a picture was emerging. But more than that, I was beginning to understand the enormity of correction that would need to be effected. In a way, the women had been led, but it could not and would not be ignored that they had been the applicants. They had chosen the path, and I determined that a fair and appropriate retribution would be imposed. But the events at Sullum with Sharon had been sloppy and burdened with risk. I would need to be more careful. The stakes were higher now, and there was far more information to be gleaned. One Tuesday evening, whilst Marianne and Jacob were at horticulture class again, I wandered across the dry-plowed lines in the fields beyond St. Peter's until I reached the scarecrow that the children had made. An old denim jacket had been stuffed with straw, which protruded from its cuffs like dried worms. The legs were made from ripped suit cloth, but the face was to behold, a twisted, full-head mask of black leather patchwork sewn roughly together, leaving jagged holes for eyes and mouth. Perfect. No mention was made of Sharon Poulton in the newspapers. That would only happen later after Jessica Burroughs and Sue Webster had disappeared, and a pattern, as the police saw it, had begun to materialize. I had been careful, though, and it was not plausible that a link could be considered between an underwriter at one of the Southern County's most prestigious assurance companies and the vanishing of prostitutes from Oxford's bustling streets. I experienced no genuine pleasure from it, only an ever-decreasing sense of contentment which drifted further away from me with each vivid incident. It was both extraordinary and unexpected that the unpleasantness would need to escalate on every occasion. Not for pleasure or satisfaction, but merely to dampen, if only temporarily, the unrelenting animal of my creation. It was terrifying to consider that the animal may, in the end, control me completely. I understood, though, ultimately, that I was the puppet master, the one responsible for controlling risk, that I alone would decide when and how the animal, the surgeon of Solemn, as those imbeciles called him, would be unleashed again. And, as with my underwriting, I was becoming ever more proficient at reducing risk as time went on.
As the summer of 71 continued, the box beneath the floorboards in the attic room grew heavy with tokens of the history I had created, the shriveled, neatly incised evidence that all seven applicants had one existed and had now been dealt with accordingly. It was dangerous to keep the box in the house, but important, not for inane pleasure or sexual gratification, but to bring reality, proof, to all I had achieved. I found Jacob in the attic room one evening, late in August, kneeling beside Sam, who was sniffing about the rug above the loose boards with canine curiosity. Any effective parent will agree that clear and unyielding parameters are essential in order for a child to develop in the correct manner. Should parameters be breached, then reprisal must be sharp and conclusive. Only then can a child fully understand the importance of hierarchy and be able to identify their ranking within it. Needless to say, I ensured that neither of them would ever make the same mistake again. The police's discovery of the bodies at Sullum was an interesting series of events. It was as though, by simply excavating the remains, the case had been solved, which, in a way, it had. The missing women had been accounted for, and the nature of their deaths exposed. All that was missing was the killer's identity, the one now known as the surgeon of Sullum. Whilst it brought a sense of trepidation that I may be apprehended, again it highlighted the fact that history had been created, however bloody and diabolical, and that I was responsible. The nightmares were subtle at first. Often I was naked, wandering beneath the tall pines at Sullum, beneath moonlight. I became aware of a tall, dark figure nearby, no more than a shadow slipping amongst the trees, watching, always moving closer. Soon, though, the dreams became clearer and more vivid, colors and sounds emerging with unnatural clarity, the dark figure drawing ever closer, until finally, one night, he stood before me, masked in black leather and holding the scalpel which I had come to know all too well. Our eyes met, the same dark eyes only his behind ragged leather, his voice, my voice, only deeper and raspy with edge. The work is almost done, and you have fared well, Charles, but we must remain focused and resolute until the rescission is concluded. Now that the horrors have been seen to, we must turn to the source, the one known as Marceau. He was right, of course. The task required correct settlement, however difficult. Felix Marceau had become the key to the end game. The final piece in the bloody jigsaw of my construction and dealing with him swiftly would be the only method to bring a total resolution to matters. In the next dream, I stood before a flawless mirror in a white room that I did not recognize. I reached up to feel my face, but when I did, realized the skin was loose, no longer attached to the bones beneath in any way. My face fell away like flimsy rubber to reveal a bloodied leather mask of the surgeon behind, grinning back at me. I awoke screaming into the blackness, bathed in sweat. Marianne said nothing. She must have been too terrified to speak, and I cannot blame her. The silence in the bedroom was absolute. It was a feeling I will not forget. A grim, irrefutable junction had been reached, and I was no longer simply Charles, the underwriter, occasionally masked to exact retribution. Now, Charles was no more than a useful mask to conceal all that lay beneath. Good afternoon. I am ringing to speak with Mr. Felix Marceau. Speaking. Who is this? My name is Clifford Swinton, I said, working for and on behalf of Dixon Welbury Solicitors. Do you have a moment to talk, Mr. Marceau? Yes, well, of course, Mr. Swinton, sir, and I'm sorry for my tone when I think nothing of it, please. I ring in respect to a private matter that will need to be dealt with personally in the coming days, in relation to the estate of the late Jessica Burroughs. I was wondering if I might be welcome to see you, shall we say, tomorrow afternoon, three o'clock? And so the game began. I had expected a dilapidated bedsit of some description, but never this. Marceau's three-story Victorian townhouse was located on the Ifri Road, directly opposite the track where Roger Bannister completed his four-minute mile in May 1954. To passing pedestrians, I will have appeared a neatly suited gentleman with a briefcase, a medical professional perhaps, on an appointment of some description. In a sense, I was. I rang the bell and waited for what seemed like an eternity on the doorstep. Behind the frosted glass of the front door, I could distinguish a shadowy figure shifting around the corridor within. Above me, on the jagged roof of Marceau's home, two crows sat silhouetted against the bright September sky, twitching their dark beaks this way and that, towards one another, then away again, like old men whispering over an enemy's grave. Marceau was slight of build, although I noticed, as I shook his clammy little hand, that he was a tall man, nearing my own height, and imagined he could be nimble enough if the need arose. I put him around ten years my junior, possibly thirty-five. He too wore a suit, more expensive than mine, although he was not well-spoken and had clearly not come from money. Come through, Mr. Swinton, come through. I was ushered into a darkened lounge area just west of the main corridor. 
The leaded window here looked directly onto the brickwork of the house next door, and I was glad of it. I appreciate your hospitality, Mr. Marceau, I began, as we seated ourselves in opposite armchairs, with only a small, glass-topped coffee table between us. Marceau leaned forward, hands clasped together. It was difficult to ignore the excited anticipation glistening in his small, rodent-like eyes. As I mentioned on the telephone, I am here on personal business, representing Dixon Welbury solicitors, and more specifically, in my capacity as executor to the last will and testament of the late Jessica Burrows, who I believed you were well acquainted with. Terrible business, Marceau replied, lighting a cigarette with trembling fingers. Absolutely terrible. Jess was no angel, but no one deserves to die like that, to be left in the woods like an animal. I'll kill that surgeon with my own bare hands if they ever get him. Indeed. I picked the briefcase from the floor and laid it on my lap, rolling the combinations under thumb until the familiar clicks broke the silence. I have some paperwork with me that will require completion. As you are the sole beneficiary to Miss Burroughs' will, there are certain regulatory requirements that need to be satisfied, as I'm sure you can imagine. Of course, Mr. Swinton. I understand completely. Shortly before her death, Miss Burroughs had applied for life assurance, the proceeds of which are now held in our client account. In order to transfer the monies to you, some signatures will be required. Life insurance, said Marceau, blowing smoke towards me. Well, I'll be. The correct term is life assurance, I said, opening up the briefcase. The sum involved is 250,000 pounds. And will it all be left to me? Indeed, but firstly there are some questions that I need to ask you, and it is of the utmost importance that they be answered truthfully, or there will be consequences. Yes, Mr. Swinton, ask away. Seven whores, I said calmly. Seven life assurance applications, seven wills, all with different solicitors, but naming the same sole beneficiary. What have you to say about that, Mr. Marceau? Marceau stared stupidly at me, with a mishmash of fear and confusion. After all, how could I possibly know all this? Everyone talks under the correct circumstances, I explained. The women were only too happy to oblige, once the right conditions had been created. But I have been unfair. Let me introduce myself properly now. I pulled the mask down over my face, the familiar scent of leather and dried blood awakening the monster within once again. Under my touch, the cold steel of the scalpel was the most beautiful comfort imaginable. As always, I began with the ears. The decision to let Felix Marceau live was concluded from a risk-based quantification. He had much less to lose, and I would make it extremely clear that the consequences of exposure would be merciless and without ambiguity. The chances of him ever considering such action were trace, at best. The rationale for keeping him alive was of far greater importance than the risk associated with it. During the final, bloody rescission, Marceau confessed, and in doing so confirmed my suspicion that his intention had always been to murder the women who had signed, under duress, the documents that would guarantee his future personal wealth. There was a significant amount of control involved, which was, in fairness, worthy of some degree of respect. The women were all tenants in his relatively extensive property portfolios in the Gloucester Green area of Oxford, and so he held all the cards, or so he thought. Unfortunately for Marceau, he was ill-prepared for the underwriting department at Legal and Standard, and only now would begin to understand the importance of hierarchy. From this moment forward, Marceau would limp through his pathetic, disfigured existence with the knowledge that there were other, far more dangerous and sophisticated predators than he, walking beside him. Five years had passed without incident, proving that my risk-based calculations, as always, have been accurate. The surgeon of Sullum is a mythical-like creature, no more than a tale inherited through the ages with no basis in reality. This is as though the events of the summer of 1971 never occurred. But the contents of the box under the floorboards in the attic room bears proof. Sometimes it's important to open it and remember... That was Patrick O'Neill's underwriting department as read by Seth Williams. Seth Williams is a reader, sailor, and banker, in that order, who lives on the south coast of Massachusetts, U.S. Not a writer, but a lover of genre fiction and the spoken word. He does have a husband, cats, and dog. For some reason, that seems to be important in bios. He can be contacted at theboojum.org. Link will be in the show notes. And that will be our show for the evening. Join us again next week for another episode of Tales to Terrify.
Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 